This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Good evening. I'm Ron Burgundy, and this is what's happening in your world tonight. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and what better time than today to celebrate National Nurses Appreciation Day. Let's say a big basement thank you to all the frontline workers out there who are putting your lives on the line to fight COVID-19. Whether either of you listeners work in healthcare or not, make sure to pass this message along from this ragtag bunch down here. Speaking of jobs, have you ever wondered what it takes to break into that job you've always wanted but have no idea how to do it? If you've ever listened to the podcast Startup, the name Arlen Hamilton might ring a bell. Today, we welcome Arlen down to the basement to discuss her journey to break into venture capital in Silicon Valley. We'll talk about how to turn being underestimated into your greatest advantage. Also, Warren Buffett is largely ignoring coronavirus in his investing decisions. How come? We'll share during our headline segment. Plus, we'll toss out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky caller and, of course, save time for some of my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who are going to have to call the ambulance if they don't start appreciating nurses more. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I don't think I've heard that phrase since, what, third grade? I appreciate nurses all the time. Doug needs to appreciate nurses. Doug's fault. Yeah, Doug. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Call and Names Like It's Third Grade Podcast. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the card table from me, the man, the myth, the legend, who brings it like it's Wednesday, Mr. OG. Although I don't have a cool shirt like yours says, hashtag podcaster. Thanks for getting me one of those. <laughs> this is from the company we just left. <laughs> little homage. I like it. Yes. Welcome, by the way, everybody listening on Westwood One. So happy to be part of the Westwood One Network of Podcasts, OG. Big thanks to John and the team for bringing us on. I didn't know that basement-based podcasts were so in demand. Well, near as I can tell, there was a long list of people and we were toward the bottom. Well, and the fact that we got a 40% raise over the zero we make now it's amazing. Thank you, Westwood One, for bringing those big podcasting dollars to us. He he does drive a hard bargain, but uh, from a marketing standpoint, 
We had to take it. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by The Stacker. That's where you find out everything going on in the basement. If you happen to be new to the show, you want to keep up with events. As the country opens up, OG and I someday will go back on the road. We'll have meetups again. For now, we're having virtual meetups online over on our YouTube channel, Facebook Lives, having a lot of fun. Plus, you can get all of Joe's uh, money mistake lessons. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash Stacker for more. Arlen Hamilton, you didn't listen to the show Startup fantastic podcast about entrepreneurship, starting a business. Arlen Hamilton was somebody who, while she was trying to break into being a venture capitalist, was sleeping on a bench at the airport, pretending she was waiting for a plane when she really was homeless. And what a great story she has. A super successful story. Can't wait to talk to her. But first we have some headlines. So believe it or not, in today's market, OG, we have some headlines. Who knew that there would be headlines? Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Barron's, written by Evie Liu. Low volatility ETFs performed well until they didn't. Here's what happened <laughs> and why. I, I, my whole goal on this show is to find... Uh, Hyperbole. Well... More than that, to find headlines that can help OG say, I told you so, because I believe oh. I believe we talked about this, and I believe well, you kind of rolled your eyes when these were being rolled out. Remember that? No, but it sounds like something I would do. During recent sell-offs, Evie writes, including the sharp drops that sent the market into bear territory, low volatility stocks beat the overall market, but no more. Once the initial shock subsided, investors opted for so-called quality stocks, why would I go with quality stocks in my portfolio? As the COVID-19 pandemic reminds everyone that there's more to risk than just the size of a stock's price swings. Ever since the financial crisis, investors have flocked to the stocks with the smallest price swings, dubbed low volatility stocks. The lack of volatility was supposed to steer investors away from danger. And for the most part, it did. When the S&P 500 index plunged nearly 20% during the fourth quarter of 2018, for instance, the $9.6 billion Invesco S&P 500 Low Volatility Exchange Traded Fund, ticker symbol SPLV, the purest play for low-vol stocks, suffered only half that loss. Even in the early stage of the current crisis, from the S&P 500's peak on February 19th until March 9th, Invesco's low-volatility ETF fell 13% to the S&P's 19% decline. But extend that time frame out two more weeks through the market's low on March 23rd, and the S&P 500 had fallen 34%, and the Invesco ETF by a deeper 36%. Since that bottom, the low-vol ETF has recovered 27% to the ETF's 30 The low-vol even coming back slower. Well, it has to. That's the thing. The trade-off in stock investing is the volatility in exchange for appreciation, in exchange for long-term performance. It's no different than when you think about how you borrow money from a bank. If you're a reasonable credit risk and you go to the bank and you say, I would like to borrow money to buy a home. It's within my budget. I've got a sizable down payment. You know, I've got a reasonable income. The bank is going to say, no problem. Here's some money. If you don't pay it back, we will take your home, but we think you're good for it. And here's the interest rate. And maybe you might get a three and a half percent interest rate or 4% interest rate. That's low volatility for them, low return for them. Now, if you also said, Hey, while I'm at it, I would like to add a car loan. 
While I'm at it, I would also like to add an open line of credit that's unsecured or a credit card at the same bank. You don't get the same 4% rate for each one of those because each one of those comes with different risks associated for the bank, right? The person who's giving you the money in this example. So the same thing is true with stock market. If you say, hey, I want low volatility, you're just saying I want low return in a different word yeah. because you have to have high volatility to have high return. That's just a trade-off. There is no such thing as in the lunch. entire world of investing as saying, yeah, as saying I'm going to have high return and low volatility. It does not exist in the real world. It, it exists in marketing land. It exists in hedge fund land. It exists in salesmanship. But in real life living, it doesn't really happen. But in this case, OG, you got higher volatility on the downside. You just didn't get it back up when the market has has come up. So now you've had a deeper loss and you've had these. No, stocks. that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that you you if you own that low volatility fund, you figured out, you know, to borrow the Warren Buffett phrase, you know, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And when you have low volatility, you can't possibly have high return. And then the other thing happens, which that low volatility thing turns out to not have existed in the first place, which is kind of what you were saying of, yeah, but I still went down. And in this case, I went down more than I sh than, than the market. Yep. Because it's not a thing. In some ways, this feels like a sector bet. You know, when you buy a single sector of the market, you're asking for the risk of when that sector gets hit, that you get hit much, much harder. I mean, look at oil right now, right? It seems like <laughs> to me, if you're picking stocks that traditionally have a certain risk profile equating to this low volatility index, I can't imagine that you wouldn't be bunching up on stocks that have fairly similar up-down swings. I would have to think that you're getting some stocks that perform the same in different markets so that when whatever condition hit one of these stocks, it hit more of these stocks, meaning mm -hmm. that you've loaded up on too much of one thing. Well, that could be. And also, we didn't foresee this and this hasn't happened in recent memory and, you know, all these other sorts of black swan event things, you know, that say, well, this time's different. It really isn't. It's all the same. Well, th so, this was the case in 2007, 2008, if you remember, OG. People had safe havens. They had cash. Money markets broke the dollar for the first time ever. And mm -hmm. cash for the first time wasn't necessarily safe if you were outside of an FDIC-insured account. Second, people ran to gold. Remember, gold dropped every bit as much as the stock market did. Real estate was the middle of the forest fire. Stocks were horrible. Uh, there was no place to run. There was no place to run during that downturn. Well, it's just like earlier in this crisis, let's call it, there was a moment where interest rates were negative. We all remember recently, just a few weeks ago, when oil was negative, that was the headline, which if you kind of think through that, how, how, how just profoundly silly that is, the same thing is true with interest rates being negative. I would rather guarantee a loss of 1% or some percent than the unknown of everything else. Yeah. I mean, just how, just how crazy is that, that people would feel that way. I'll take you know, it. I'm going to give you a hundred dollars. I know I'm only getting it 99 back next year, but that is way better deal to me than any other possible scenario. I'm like how gonna... much panic do you have to have in your life to like go, uh, you're just going to punch me in the face, right? Like you're not going to punch me in the stomach also. Like I'll take the face punch, but, it, um, it isn't, if you want to get hit, it's where do you want to get hit? Yeah. The moral of the story is that all of this crap, when they add these 
hyperbolic words associated with their their funds or their investments. All are marketing pitches. That's it. And I think there I think there always is an Achilles heel. Every strategy has an Achilles heel. Yeah. Our second headline comes to us from Worth. This is written by George Salapa. George writes, why is Warren Buffett ignoring the coronavirus market dip? Remember how in 2007, 2008 OG, Warren Buffett came to the rescue and said, I believe in U.S. stocks. Remember that huge headline? Mm -hmm. The coronavirus, George writes, has brought markets through the deepest correction since 2008. Investors beginning to speculate, what is Berkshire Hathaway CEO Warren Buffett going to buy? And this makes a lot of sense. After all, it is Buffett who said, be greedy only when others are fearful. Over the past few weeks, the markets fell very severely, very fast. Market commentators turned bleaker every day while the S&P 500 kept tumbling lower and lower apart from brief periods of brutal volatility. Tumbling, Holy tumbling cow. lower. I mean, gosh, could we stuff any more flowery adjectives into we the stock market went down. We need some like Western music. This sounds like somebody some gets somebody epic. gets paid by the word by the flowery word. It was a grim picture as any market goes. correction should be. And given that the economy is on a near complete lockdown, there are not many signs that things will soon get better. Apart from one famous economy, investor. stock market, not the same. <laughs> We've been through this, people. Famous investors are beginning to look greedy. Howard Marks. One of the most careful and celebrated investors hinted in a recent Bloomberg interview. He's out in the market buying. Mark seemed rather optimistic. Indeed, he has been complaining about how dear the market has become for some time now. Carl Icahn said similar things during a recent appearance on CNBC, as did some other investors like Mark Cuban. While Icahn thinks the market may still have a long way to go down, he's buying. These moves by professional investors might seem like good news. Problem is that this time, they're not alone. Every day over the past three weeks, market news reporters have been asking the same question. Should you buy the dip? The piece goes on to talk about, oh, gee, just how bullish they are and how they're buying all the way down. And then they've been buying all the way back up as the market has come back. Moving forward in the piece, it says, in contrast to some other famous investors, Warren Buffett doesn't seem as bullish. If we know anything, it's that Warren Buffett doesn't rush things. He's not interested in buying a short-term market dip, but making a strategic move. The widespread panic from coronavirus sent markets everywhere sharply down, and some more traditional sectors were hit particularly hard. Buffett's hurting too. Estimates vary, but it could be as much as $70 billion, giving his large portfolio in U.S. equities. It's also been reported that Buffett sold large part of his positions in Delta Airlines at about 4% in Southwest Airlines. As soon as the news broke, people began speculating about what it could mean. It's unlike it means that he thought that the stocks were going to go down and stay down for a long time. P says it's unlikely it's unlikely Buffett will start buying anytime soon. Markets may still have some room to go down, but that's not what drives Buffett's decisions anyway. Instead, he'll try to. I kind of wonder, you know, he was anti airline for such a long time, and then finally like drank the Kool Aid and then got punched in the face again. <laughs> I remember a great you. quote he had one time that said, if I ever tell you I'm buying an airline, tell me to take two aspirin, send me to bed, and we'll talk about it in the morning. Yeah. And now he has two. Well, one now. Anyway, this piece uh, speculates on uh, where Buffett's going. Clearly, the author doesn't know, which means <laughs> it's it's clickbait. But that's the point, OG. And the reason I bring this to the table is that people are looking for signals and you're looking at all of these famous investors and they all have different strategies about what they're doing. But one thing is clear from this piece, they all have a strategy. 
And they're not sitting around looking at each other asking, what should I do now? What should I do now? Everybody's deploying what strategies that they thought of well before this time frame. I don't think Mark Cuban is uh, going, man, let's figure out some filters so I might be able to take advantage of this. Yeah, like maybe he thought of that already. Yeah. He'd been working on it a long time ago. I mean, the names that fit his filters he's talking about, and those may be different, but it's Mm -hmm. because of the fact that they fit his filters that he set up well, well, well long ago and that work for him. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Stock market was down. The S&P was down 13% in March. It was up 13% in April. By my math, that's even. Don't write hate mail. I get it. I'm, I, trust me, joke. I know how to do math. It's, it's a, joke. a joke. It's a joke, people. Minus 13 plus 13, still zero. Hey, you're there. I don't, I don't know. But my point is, is that while you're sitting around going, well, I don't know what, you know, what, what do we think? Listen, this stuff changes every day and faster than you could get out is faster than you can get back in. This is such a great example of why you have to stick to your investment plan, why you have to stick to your investment policy that you created when things were calm, when things were normal and you go, oh, this is so boring. I don't know why I have to do this. It's so that you, when you're crazy, you can look on the shelf and pull off the, pull off the how to list because trying to do all this stuff on the fly is impossible. And yeah, Warren Buffett may have a strategic play out there or not. You know, his, his big thing is buying small companies anyway. So you'll know when he buys a chocolate factory, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, so if he adds a hundred thousand shares to his American express portfolio, it's like, whatever, you know, he already owns that stock, a whole bunch of it. So what's the big deal? The thing is, is that he didn't start thinking of the plan April the 1st. He wasn't twiddling his thumbs, you know, all through the month of April and March going, Oh, Hey, have you heard what's going on in the stock market? It's pretty crazy. I should probably, you know, sit here and, and worry for a while. And then maybe, Maybe I'll think about doing something, you know, when things get back to normal. But we've just seen what happens. The stock market trades in advance of normal. It trades in advance of things that are going on. And people who are sitting on the sideline going, well, I'm just going to wait for things to get back to normal before I, you're going to miss it. It's already, it's already passed by then. Things aren't normal. That strategy has never, ever, ever worked. And every time we hear it again. I'm going to put I mean, my money on the sideline. I'm going to wait until it gets to normal. I'm going to wait until things it get back to normal. never, ever works. I, I distinctly remember having a meeting with a client in 2014-15 time period. He was waiting for the stock market to recover from the 2008 recession. You know, once, once the market recovers, you know, then I'll, then I'll go back in. And I don't know what the S&P was in 2015. I don't really care. But... It was beyond 600, which is the bottom of 2009, you know, and I'm like, his name was Mark. And I'm looking at him going, Mark, what, what are you waiting on? Yeah. Well, you know, wait for the market to recover. It's recovered. It's above where it was in 2008 in plain as day with no emotion in his retort said, yeah, I don't really believe those numbers. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's some kind of weird psychosis going on. You can't pick the top. And if you so perfectly removed all your capital on February the 19th and perfectly deployed it all back in on March the 23rd, show me the trade history. 
I submit I would love to, to you see, that there's probably I, somebody out there who did that. I would love to see among places like Robinhood, where you have mostly immature investors, inflows versus outflows on March 23rd. I can tell you where Robinhood money is. They all bought USO, you know, and went, right. hey, how awesome. The stock went up eightfold last week. It's like, no, it didn't. It had a reverse eight to one stock split. That's it did. Oh, gosh. You know, you just, you know, it's like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Just, just to keep that exchange traded fund afloat. I didn't want to dive into the whole USO thing. But for people who want more on that, we did a headline on uh, Money with Friends about yeah. it. And that's another case, by the way, that the second, the cheapest oil ETF is the one that was the worst place to be. And I know what amateur investors did. They went with, hey, cheapest is best and went there and had you bought DBO versus USO. You wouldn't be whole, but you would have probably only lost half of your money so far versus <laughs> instead of 70%. Yeah, ugly. It's just, I mean, here's the thing. You got to have a plan. You got to have a strategy and you have to work it. And the time, the time that you make all your money is when you worked it in the last six, eight weeks. And it sounds trite. It sounds, it sounds boring to say, no, just keep doing your thing. Just keep doing your thing. But we see it. We see people who have their little prognostication, right? This is what I've been saying the last several weeks. You and I, neither of us know, nobody knows where the next 25% move is. Does the market go up 25% from here or down 25% from here? Don't know. No one knows. But I do know the next 100% move. So I'm going to be part of that. Off we go. I think that's lesson number one. Lesson number two is picking a fund that you think has no downside. The problem is you just haven't found it yet. Every strategy has a downside. Well, on my list of people that I have really wanted to interview for some time is the woman who's waiting on hold on my dad's shortwave. Her name is Arlen Hamilton. She is a founder and managing director of Backstage Capital, which is a venture capital firm, which is dedicated to minimizing funding disparities. She's going to talk about that, about the difference between what the numbers say and who is getting funding money when it comes to Silicon Valley and venture capital money. She doesn't come initially from the world of venture capital, and I think that's what makes her such an interesting person. The way that she looks at investments is different. The people she's looking to invest with are different. The team that she has is different. You may have read her manifesto in uh, Fast Company magazine. That went incredibly viral. There's viral, OG, and then there's incredibly viral. Is incredibly there a, viral. Yes, be more viral in the entrepreneurship world, in the venture capital world. And of course, she was the subject of the third season of a Gimlet podcast called Startup. Let's say hello to Arlen Hamilton. And I'm my dad, Shortwave. It's our new friend, Arlen Hamilton. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Well, I'm great and I'm very honored. It's strange because being a longtime podcast listener, not just a podcast host, and hearing your story on Startup, I feel like I know you, which is something, by the way, people say to me all the time when they meet me. They're like, I feel like I know you, but it's a one-way street. You don't, you, you have no idea who the heck I am. Is that weird? 
after startup, people coming up to you all the time and feeling like they know who you are? Uh, well, you know, it was startup, but it was a few other things. So it was fast company. Fast company, it was, yeah. It was, so it was before and after. And I don't know the word is weird. If the word is weird, it is more like every single time it, it doesn't get old. Like it still surprises me. It's still like, wow, because not only do they come up to me, but the reactions that I get from people are very intense. Yeah. So usually people are very happy and excited. Sometimes they cry. Sometimes they're hug. Can I hug you? Can I hug you? you know? uh, so it's, it's usually really intense. And I'm just like, Hey, okay, let's go. <laughs> let's well, do it. well, and I think about your story, which a lot of our listeners don't know your story. So I'd, I'd love to dive into that a little bit because it's the beginning of your book is all about your story and how people can learn from that. But I'm thinking about with the coronavirus. Right now, you and I are both in places where we're comfortable and we're able to kind of ride this out. But I remember me, Arlen, in 1993, I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from. I didn't know how I was going to pay the rent that month. And by the way, that pales in comparison <laughs> to what you went through. When you wrote the manifesto uh, that made it to Fast Company, I believe you were at the airport. Is that correct? Yeah, the Dear White Venture Capitalist blog posts that I wrote in 2015, I was I, I remember the scene of me writing it because it was I was sitting at a at a chair at the airport, had the laptop, which I was grateful to have, open to the airport Wi-Fi, and I was typing <laughs> and I had my luggage next to me. And anybody passing by would have thought that I was just waiting for to buy a ticket somewhere on the outside of the gate, yeah. outside of the TSA. That was where I was living. I would spend that same time later that night putting a pair of jeans under my head as my pillow and walk around that airport as much as I could and, and go out, of course. And, and yeah, so it was it was intense. But if this were five years ago, I, I don't I can't tell you what I would have done. I have yeah. no idea what I would have been able to do. And I'm I'm so grateful to be able to shelter in place. How did you decide to become a venture capitalist? Because it seemed reading your book like things were really starting to roll with the music industry. By the way, I love your story about the Norwegian boy band that you brought, that, that, that you brought over and they're drunk going across the United States because you brought them. Maybe we'll get to tell that story. But it seemed like things were really going, working with CeeLo Green and some other big names in the industry. Why'd you make the switch? Well, I was on the road and off the road. And if anybody who's worked in that industry on tour on the touring side, which is like the grunt work side, but very exciting. You don't know when your next gig is going to be. You just sort of have a really great ride and then you, you don't have anything that you're doing. So I was off the road in between gigs and started seeing people like Ashton Kutcher and Troy Carter, and who's Lady Gaga's former manager and Ellen DeGeneres and these different people, Bieber, you know, these different people were making these, these $50,000 investments or so into companies. And I wanted to know what Silicon Valley was and what startups were and why this was happening. This is all 2010, 2011. And once I realized what it was, I realized, wow, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I just didn't know what to call myself. You know, it was sort of like a, a second coming out, really. Yeah, yeah. And my idea was I was going to start a company. And in order to start a company, I wanted to, like a new company, a tech company. In order to start a company, I wanted to research everything there was to know about it. So I would know who all the players were. I would know what they were thinking, what their incentives were, et cetera, and be prepared. I've just been very uh, studious my whole life, and that's what I wanted to do to prepare. And in the research, 
is where I found out 90% of all venture capital, which is the funding that goes to these groups, goes to startups in a lot of ways, goes to straight white men in a country where straight white men make up less than a third of the population. And the straight white men in my life, including that Norwegian pop man you talked about, and people in business and the people I, when they heard the statistics, they couldn't believe it either. It was just a weird statistic and it didn't make sense. And I thought, what is this? Is this, is this blatant? Is this something that we've been left out of on purpose? Or is this simply no one has addressed it in this, in a certain way before that has got garnered attention. And that's what really set me on my way of, if I don't fix, help fix this problem, me getting one investor or one investment round for this company is not going to do much because for, for one, I'm going to have to face this again in my series A, because this is a, a systematic situation and problem. And B, there won't be a lot of competition. There won't be a lot of thrilling innovation around me from people who I know are thrilling and innovative if we don't fix the whole thing, if we don't at least attempt to. So to me, it was like, it became less about raising for a company and more about like, let's raise for a revolution. Let's raise for a, a complete overhaul and at the very least have that be our aim and see how far we can get. So I set out to invest in a hundred companies led by underrepresented founders by 2020 around 2014. And, and, and I want to draw out a point there too. You not only decided that was your goal, you put that in writing was the, was the process Arlen of putting that in front of you in writing and having it be this thing that's out there, something important to your success? Yeah. I say you should write your own headlines some people, you know, you can take that as a, it's manifesting, it's all these things, but you can't just manifest something without execution. <laughs> so to me, it's like a North Star. I write my own headlines. I still do the, to this day. And I wrote in 2015-ish, I said, Arlen Hamilton invests in 100 companies or 100th company. And I said it for 2020. Kind of like, you know, back to the future, you're setting the time right. machine <laughs> to set where you want to go. Yeah. And I did that. And by May of 2018, we reached as a team, a hundred companies. It's so amazing how you, you, ha- you set that in front of you and then you get it, but, but it wasn't easy from the start. I mean, we can talk about some of the meetings you went into and the horrible stuff that you heard, but I really want to focus on this, which is you have no money. You're going into these meetings. You even make the point at the beginning of your first chapter that money manifests money, right? That people are attracted to money. How do you attract money, Arlen? Like a lot of our listeners out there, how do they attract money when they're starting with nothing? That's right. The whole book is meant to answer that question really, because it's the number one question I'm asked, uh, you know, additionally, will you invest in me? But it's really what they're asking is, will someone invest in me? And how do I manifest that myself? It starts with information is what I say. It starts with that research that I did when I got curious. So I guess maybe it even starts even before information. It starts with just unbridled curiosity and letting that curiosity take over so that you invest in yourself in information on a day-to-day basis where you're just shoring up your reserves. You are, no matter what is happening around you and no matter how many no's you're getting in these meetings, you're continuously educating yourself. And that can be through reading, which is what I did. It can be through watching videos, 
which is what I did. All of these things. It can be audio. You don't have to be a certain type of learner or a certain type of tools. There, there's a basic fundamental amount of tools and there's a privilege in the tools that I'm talking about, but a majority of us listening have them. And it's in utilizing all of those tools to take full advantage and full control and autonomy of what you have control over. Because every single day I'm asking rich, mostly white men back in 2015, 2012, et cetera, 2019, today, yesterday, right? Asking them, can you put money behind me so I can invest in other people? I'm getting no's after no, after no, after no. I can't control them. I can influence, but I can't control. But what I can control is how much information I am taking in and learning every single day. So that in 2015, September 15, when an angel investor in in Silicon Valley named Susan Kimberlin is right about to say yes to me, she is meeting me at a time where I have so much that I have built up in knowledge and wisdom and insight and soon to be experience that I am, I spend no time wasted. I go from that moment of a yes to here's your first 50 K to let me turn that into more than 10 million, more than a hundred companies invested in and countless jobs created and countless lives changed in less than four and a half years. Well, and I'm thinking as you're talking about that too, I'm a person who feels a lot of fear I feel fear every time. I I was afraid three minutes before I started talking to you about this conversation, but it's got to seem to me that the more information you get, the more that counteracts that fear meter. Did you feel a lot less fear because you have more information? That's a fantastic, fantastic point. And I'm so glad you made it because I talk a lot about siphoning privilege and you have a particular privilege of being a white man, right? Sure. But otherwise, we have a lot in common, it seems. But I talk about that, and people ask me all the time, like, how do you have so much confidence? You just seem like you have a bunch of confidence. And I've never really distilled it down to the fact that, yes, my confidence comes from executing on what I preach, which is having that information all the time. I don't go into a I, – I go into a, a, a meeting, and I go into a situation, a relationship, et cetera, curious, forever curious. Like, that's always going to be the fuel. But I always go in prepared and in a way that I can be prepared, that I can control. I may not dress the best and I may not have, you know, a lot of money. It may even be difficult for me to get to the meeting, you know, in the world where we're taking transport and stuff. But when I'm there, I have I'm on lock. And that's an ex- a very uh, exciting way that you frame that. It's funny you say that because I saw a meme about uh, how we have the power, most of us have the power of the world's questions in the palm of our hand, and we use it to watch cat videos. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's so true. Yeah, and it's true. We do, everybody has some sort of information, everybody, not 100% of people. Again, there's, there's so much further to go, but a lot of people have a lot of information, and that's a place to start. It seems like for you, the power of connection has also been incredibly important. And you speak in your book about people and about um, optimizing for humans, optimizing for people. You tell a great story about a band that we both like, a band named Rilo Kelly. <laughs> who, who, cool. It was so funny when you said that. I'm like, oh, yeah, yes, we do have a lot in common. Uh, <laughs> uh, but if you don't mind, tell that story, because this is a great story about a band that was a really small band, but because they were optimizing for human, they used that to get ahead. 
Yeah, so Jenny Lewis was a child actress in movies like The Wizard and True Beverly Hills and all sorts of things, really fun, fun movies. And around my age, so I grew up watching her. And a few years later, when I was in my early 20s, I learned and realized that she was in a band called Rilo Kylie. And not only was she in a band, leading the band, but I loved it. It was really cool indie music, and I loved that kind of music. I love a lot of kind of music, right? So I, I loved it. I was in Columbus, Ohio, and it, she, they happened to be playing there a few days later. So I went to see them in this little rinky-dink place, really awesome place, but it was small. And it was, you know, we were, it was so small that I was just touching the stage. I was just like, I'm like leaning on the stage and a couple hundred people in there, maybe a little bit more, but it felt like it was very intimate. And they just killed it. They just killed it. And not only did they leave themselves on that stage, I mean, just bled for us for 90 minutes or so to a smaller amount of people than you imagine. But afterwards, at least Jenny, I, I wasn't paying too much attention to the rest of them, but at least Jenny was out in the crowd drinking with us and hanging out and just really making that connection. These are people, even though they were an indie band, she was because she was so well known to certain like this cult following it was incredible for her to be sitting with us and to be talking to us and so it left an amazing impression on me as whatever age I was and it really I was just like I wonder if she's doing this one-off or not I wonder if this is just a end of a, a tour or something but it turns out that she would just that's what she would do. She would do that while the guys would sell merch or their merch people would sell merch or whatever. We ran into her a couple more times and she she remembered my name, which is really odd, <laughs> which is really odd. It could be that it was one of the very few black people that came to their shows. And I, I do get that. But she remembered my name in a different cities, different cities and circumstances. It was very exciting. And then years later, I go to see her around the corner from my, my home in, in Hollywood. And it's 5,000 people standing room only because it's only standing. <laughs> There's no chairs on the floor. It's packed, it's sold out. And this, I watched this, I have video footage of it and they're just going crazy for her. And it was just a few years later. It wasn't like overnight, but it, it took a while. You don't hear them on the radio. You know, you may know her from some postal service stuff that she's done, some cool kind of stuff. You may know her from Grey's Anatomy scenes or something like that, but she's not mainstream, but she's able to fill a place a lot of people can't fill around the corner and I knew that it was from those early days of just, just reaching those people and, and caring when it was a smaller group. Because if she had, she probably would have been fine not to do that, but it probably would have stayed yeah. pretty static. Yeah. Pretty static. Is, it would have been limited to how many people can hear her over the airwaves. And, and other people's situation, other people's circumstances would have dictated how many people knew of her music. What she did was she put that back in her hands and she said, I'm going to talk to everyone I can so that they, I make an impression on them. They can then make it, make an impression on others to, to see what I'm doing. It's just, it's just brilliant. It reminds me a lot of Ani DeFranco and Prince and just a lot of people who looked at music in a different way. And just your power of connection. I thought it was such an amazing story for all of us that solving for people and looking for diversity, trying to find stories about people who aren't like you, which by the way, I wanted to ask you a question about the founders that you've worked with. You talked to so many interesting people, Arlen, when you find a new founder that you really connect with, who's been 
underestimated. Is there one characteristic that really stands out that you can point to that makes someone successful where other people fail? There's not just one, but I tell you, I call it being hungry and not thirsty. So thirsty means, you know, in the vernacular, it means like you're a little desperate. And hungry just means that you're fueled. So if you're hungry and not thirsty at the same time, it's a really interesting combination. Another way of saying it is that you are you are passionate and focused at the same time. Mm-hmm. If you're only passionate, that's great, but it's very unbridled and it, and it, and it can be unwieldy. If you're only focused, then there's not a lo- enough creativity for my taste. You know, there's not yeah. enough heart for my taste. If you can combine the two, you're unstoppable. And so you combine those two things, you throw in a little bit of kindness and you throw in a little bit of the ingenuity that you can see in the way that someone reaches me or the way that they present or present. And I don't mean presenting in a polished way either. I mean, do they have a a child on their hip and then they just make it work to get that meeting? Yeah. Just different ways that different people can get themselves in the door. I think is really interesting and always looking at companies. um, Now the way that I describe it now to make it a little bit easier for people because I get asked the question of what do you look for in a company yeah. or in a founder every day of my life for five years, but I still don't have, have a good answer for it. So what I now have decided and figured out is actually I'm interested in companies today that it would take me at least 10 years for me to understand and do myself, do the company myself. So what I mean is it doesn't have to be something that's incredible, like impossible to do, but it needs to be something that in the short years that I have on this earth, I'm more willing to back you making it a reality than for me to make it a reality myself. Well, and th- that's, that's a good barometer. I, would, I was going to say, then I think the barrier of entry is a little higher and the chance that competitors are going to spring up out of the blue is a little less. Yeah. The moat comes out really yeah. quickly. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you at least one question about how I was first introduced to you, Arlen startup. Tell me about that process because, you know, there's, there's some episodes where they, they make you sound like my hero. There's other episodes where they're clearly weaving a story, right? About you. In hindsight, how do you feel about that whole thing? Yeah. Well, how did you find that? The chat? I mean, so there's a chapter in the book where I talk about it and, you know, time and space is good to have that reflection. When it, when it was first coming out, every episode, I would do an immediate reaction episode on the podcast. I don't know if you heard those. Yes. But I would do like an immediate <laughs> podcast. And so I, I respect those and I, I probably have a little bit of a different take on it now. But that time and space was good. I think ultimately, here's here's the deal. And I've said this to them directly. I think the first two episodes are, are still some of the the best podcasting I've ever heard. Yeah. I think the production of that and all of that storytelling was just amazing. Even taking myself out of it, right? Taking my bias out of it. And I think that if they, of course it was flattering, but it was more so um, there was a dignity to it that I think they afforded that they started to lose uh, some episodes in because there was not enough drama. So they needed to create some. So for the most part, I respect what was done. I understood what was I, what I was getting myself into. And so many people have come from that. So many people have, have, have heard about me from that, that I, I will always have a, a soft spot in my heart for it. There was one storyline that I just, I don't think I'll ever get over and I'll, uh, being upset about. And the rest of it, I think it's like, 
I'll just, you know, we'll go out and hang out with Amy anytime. I'll talk to Amy anytime. She's really cool. And the producers and everybody. But the storyline where I find out that I get the yes that my mom has cancer, you know, spoiler alert, right? Mm -hmm. I get this yes that my mom has a cancer on this phone call that happens to happen. It really did. I mean, there was there was no production value, right? We weren't staging anything. So I happened to get this call at this exact time that my mom, she went in for, you know, biopsy. She has cancer. They're recording me. And I know they're recording me. I'm very aware of that. And I say, okay, I close it, close the phone. And then I just kind of go on and talk. And the way that they say it is, and it kind of rings in my ears. They say, Amy says, written by other people. She says, Arlen can't afford to listen to, like, to, to think about it right now. She has to go out and raise money. And that's a dagger to me because obviously I could afford to care about that. I just didn't want to have my reaction recorded for a show. Yeah. It was so, it was a real thing. So as soon as we stopped the car, I went, talked to Chacho, who is my apprentice, uh, now my chief of staff. I went and talked to him privately, told him what was going on. And then eventually I told Amy so we could talk about it. But I just felt that was such a, uh, I thought that was like dirty pool. You know, I, I didn't think, I didn't really like that. Other than that, I think that it has done a great service to underrepresented founders because it introduced them, introduced me and us to a, a group, an audience that may not understand it from this point of view. Maybe they've only heard it as an HR problem, you know, diversity right. and they kind of go glossy eyed. But this was a more exciting way of learning about it. And obviously it brought you to me. So I have to be excited about it. That's what I was thinking. I'm very excited about it either way, because I got to to hang out with you here for a little bit. The book is called, it's about damn time available everywhere. I assume. Yes, it is on audio too. So check that out. I was very proud to do the audio uh, version myself, hardcover and ebook. Arlen Hamilton. Thanks a ton for hanging out with us for a few minutes. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, trivia fans, it's Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm getting kind of frustrated. No one else here seems to be taking National Nurses Appreciation Day nearly as serious as I am. I mean, these people risk their lives, and I, for one, think they've earned our gratitude. So to raise morale and help our crew appreciate all the good nurses out there, I just found and ordered a bad nurse uniform online. Then you'll all be able to see the difference I think I hear the delivery guy pulling up now. Let me go see if that's my bad nurse costume. Uh, so let's get your trivia question real quick before the guy shows up. The question is, what percentage of nurses today are women? I'll be back with your answer faster than you can say. Let's be serious for a minute, folks. What are the odds you're going to win that lottery and millions of dollars? You know the truth, but time and again, you lay your hard-earned money out for a ticket. Why put yourself through that? What if there were a better way? Well, here at Stacking Benjamins Industries, we don't think we know there's a better way. We present today a game sure to surprise and delight the inner you. We call it Throwing Your Money Away. Yeah, I was at the track the other night, and this fine little lady come up, and she said, 50-50 raffle? Well, I said, no thank you, ma'am, because I just got done and already threw $20 right in the trash. 
Nothing I like better than getting my paycheck and throwing most of it right away. Feels good. I was buying milk at the Quickie Mart yesterday, and they said the lottery was up to $123 billion. Ugh, all that hope and then so much regret later. I knew what I'd do. Well, I just stepped outside and threw $50 into the trash. It felt amazing. Yes, you too could join millions of Americans throwing money away every day. Then, spend days and sometimes weeks hoping that lottery or raffle pays off. I could buy a new bass boat, take the whole family to Six Flags, and maybe get a four-wheeler with Dale Earnhardt's logo on it. Why fill your days building list after list of items you'll never win when you can just throw your money away? And if you act now, we'll throw in a free no-obligation lighter so you can upgrade your experience and just burn your cash. I whipped out my free no-obligation lighter yesterday and torched $72 from my wallet. No lottery for me. Thanks, SB Industries. That was fun and regret-free. Throwing your money away. Available now wherever there's a trash can, toilet, or garbage disposal. Hey trivia fans, Doug here, and check out my bad nurse uniform. Let me just say, this skirt is uh, a, a, a lot, a lot shorter than I was anticipating. And who knew nurses carried whips? Uh, the front is also a, a lot less protective than I would have thought. I mean, it's pretty low cut. Although I gotta say, everyone's sure digging old Doug's chest hair in the, the guns. You can totally see my guns in this uniform. So time to give Joe and OG a taste of some bad nurse medicine so they can appreciate good nurses. For one, they'll be happy to be rid of bad nurse Doug, especially after OG followed too closely behind while going up the stairs. I told you to give me more space, OG. That's on you, man. You know, though, all of this has me really thinking about how I want to give back. So I think I'll strap on this outfit so they don't mistake me for one of the good nurses and I'll head down to the hospital and volunteer. Before I head over to the hospital, let's get back to today's trivia. The question was this, what percentage of nurses today are women? If you answered 64%, you'd be way off. The actual answer is a whopping 91% of nurses today are women. See, I told you women ruled the world. Now it's time for old Doug to go lend him a hand. See ya. Oh, gee, it's funny. You had talked earlier about the gentleman that said, I don't believe those numbers. And Mm -hmm. yet you have someone like Arlen who just looks in the numbers, looks at the data. And it kind of reminds me, I mean, it's a whole different analogy, but Sir John Templeton, right? Everybody's looking right. I look left. Doesn't mean he invests left. But he immediately looks left, and after he looks at the numbers of what investing left means, he then decides if he's going to deploy capital. Arlen, in a lot of ways, doing the same thing. But doing it with a plan. Doing it with a plan. Doing it with a strategy. And numbers and stuff. And and having thought that out during normal times so that can work on the plan and deploy the plan. Using, Using facts and data. Yeah. Big thanks to Arlen for hanging out with us for a while. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first, OG. Well, recovering from my wife's birthday, it's big birthday, it was a big birthday, ended in a zero, started with a four. 
So that's that's kind of what I'm valuing right now. That's nice. That's fantastic. How, 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 you know, Happy birthday. I mean, she had quite OG. the bender yesterday. Everything's black in our house. <laughs> oh, 40. I remember being a young kid like that fondly. It was so <laughs> no, great. Right? How old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? Yeah. It's your loved ones and your time and spending time with Mrs. OG on her birthday. Fantastic idea. It's why it's the only time that I'm going to spend time with her though. Oh, she's on her own the rest of the year. That's it. Well, we know the truth. She doesn't want you around the rest of the year. Ouch. You talk a good game, my friend. Uh, that's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. It's a super simple application. It's all online. You get an instant, bam, coverage decision now. Prices are affordable. And of course, their policies are issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, which is more than 160 years old. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to our friend Peter. Say hi, Peter. Hey, Baldy and Baghead. Longtime caller and infrequent listener, Peter here. I'm calling for some information on the all-in-one mortgage or offset loan, as I think they're known internationally. I can't find too much information online on these. Maybe that's a bad sign or maybe they're new. Either way, I'm dumb enough to ask you two basement dwellers to do my due diligence for me. My understanding on this all-in-one loan is that it ties a checking account to your mortgage, utilizing the balance of your checking account to counteract the principal owed on the mortgage at any given time, therein decreasing the interest owed at that time. I'm interested in this as an alternative to a traditional HELOC, which I'm having trouble securing on a wholly owned rental property since it'd be on a relatively low cost, let's say $75,000 investment home. I'd also like to not have to refinance for 30 years if I could reasonably use this account to simply tap the equity as needed for a down payment on additional cash flowing properties, of which this equity would help provide the down payment immediately on two more rentals. Assuming I'm decent with money and not susceptible to allowing myself to fall into the trap of using it for consumer debt, am I crazy to look down this path as a viable funding option? Thanks, losers. Say hi to mom for me. <laughs> wow. He really knows how to charm a dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Hmm. Peter, you might want to put some velvet on your hammer a little bit there, buddy. Yeah, I'm really excited about trying to answer his question. Yeah. So. The word scheme, OG, comes to mind here. No, no, that's not the one. It's a, It starts with an SC. Oh, it's an A in between, not an E. Scam. That's the word you're looking for. Scam. Scheme is too nice. Uh, scam is the word you're looking for. Think so? No, it's not a scam. I mean, this is the... Um, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of the, the company that came out with this years ago. But... Um, Anyways, it sounds nice in theory, doesn't it? Like basically use this home equity loan as a checking account. The The premise behind it is this. You get paid. You deposit all of your paycheck, all your paycheck into the mortgage mortgage account. And because you get paid twice a month or, you know, every week and because you get probably paychecks that are larger than your mortgage payment, two things happen. Number one, you're making these gigantic payments that are in fact, affecting the interest rate and the interest charged. And then you draw from it every day as you need, you know, normal living expenses. And then two weeks later, boom, you put another five grand in. It's like, 
you know, you're making this huge progress. The reality is, is that the math kind of checks, you know, because if you're making these payments, you, you know, you're, you're obviously affecting the interest rate. The other benefit of it, if there is one, is that if you have any leftover money, it's applied to the mortgage. So in theory, you're going to pay the thing off a little faster, right? Because it's just kind of already there. You don't have to think about transferring an extra payment. And I think there's probably a third psychological benefit of, yeah, do I really want to take money out of the house right now for that? You know, and it's not really out of the house. It's out of your paycheck, yeah. but whatever. Yeah. So, you know, those could be some some benefits. The thing that I'm super worried about is when does the bank go, yeah, we don't, we don't really like this anymore. And uh, we're really thankful that you deposited your annual bonus in there. Um, but anyway, we're closing it. And you go, well, how am I supposed to pay for my food this month? Because I don't have a paycheck because you guys took it. And like the you know, the bank just decides eight when they cut off access to credit lines and things. Oh, I mean, we're already seeing Wells Fargo and Chase now, probably Bank of America really soon, have just said we're not doing home equity loans anymore. There's just too much unknown. There's too many crazy it's, it's unverifiable. A third of the country's not working. We're pretty sure you guys don't have jobs. So <laughs> you know, so I don't even want to bother with it. I'm laughing because it's ironic, not it's funny. Sad, yeah. But anyways. I don't understand why it's such a challenge to just go, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that Wells Fargo and Chase are not doing HELOCs anymore. I don't know why you just don't go to a credit union and get a home equity loan and do it the way you want to do it, which is I want to write a check. I want to buy a property. Then I want to pay it off. And then I want to write another check, buy a property, pay it off and just do it that way. And you don't have to get cute with the 15 layers of complexity. Yeah. When I hear about strategies like this or infinite banking is another one, right? Where you attach a- That's the word. That's the word I was looking for. Infinite banking. Yeah. Where you attach a whole life policy or permanent life policy. Bank on yourself. These, These things can go very, very, very well. They can go incredibly well. Until they don't, right? To to mimic what our first headline yeah. today said. The problem is, is when the wheels fall off the bus on that strategy, they don't fall off the bus a little OG. They fall all the way off the bus. Like with infinite banking, the second that you can't maximum fund that, you begin to run into trouble with your life insurance policy as well. I mean, you're tying extra things here. You're not just losing cash flow. You could lose your house. Well, and that's the problem is that you, you just don't have control over, over your money anymore. You know, you're just assuming that the, you're just assuming that the nice folks, the honest folks, the well-intentioned, easy to deal with banking institution of the United States is just going to go, yeah, we understand. Which is why whenever I think about things like this, I think the reason exchange traded funds took off and, and, you know, back in the nineties time for old guy story. Nobody was using ETFs. There were barely any ETFs. Now ETFs are all over the place, right? All kinds of people using exchange-traded funds to get where they wanted to go. I remember hearing news that exchange-traded funds were like 3% of the overall market. Uh, Just nothing when it came to investments. ETFs, because of the fact that they were low-cost baskets that made sense, took off. Strategies like these, I've heard about for years yeah a quarter century why aren't more people using them still hard to find information on it yeah yeah if it was phenomenal more people would be would be using it yeah well he kind of answers his own issue right when he says i tried to google this but i can't find it on the internet yeah i'll tell you everything you need to know so peter thanks for the question loser (laughs) 
I just had to give it back to him. I had dork. To. That's as that's about as good as good as I can do. Uh, if you've got a question for us, and you can do it in a way where you maybe don't call us names, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. However, Peter still will, because OG and I are gentlemen. Well, Gertrude mm-hmm. really makes us be gentlemen. You know, whatever he orders for a t-shirt, we're going to send him the wrong size, though. <laughs> Joke's on you. <laughs> Give him the child's Hope extra small. Hope you can small. fit an extra small. <laughs> I bet Peter will be sporting that. When the beach finally opens up, that's going to do it for today. Hey, big thanks to everybody for hanging out again today with us. It's so fun being back behind the mic for another eight weeks. A big welcome to our new Westwood One family. Maybe we can talk about that another time. And for people really having issues, whether it is in your head, weird dreams at night, worried about the economy, worried about the market, need some joy in your life, whatever it is, OG this month is doing absolutely sales-free, straightforward calls to help. So if you're wondering what my next option is, whatever that might be, and just want to talk, well, and even if you know what your next option is, but you just want to talk, OG's got slots open, 30 minutes on him, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, take it from here, man. I'm I'm frightened to find out. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our headlines. Be like Buffett. There's nothing wrong with buying stock on sale, but the bigger picture is investing in good companies that align with your financial goals. Second, take a lesson from Arlen Hamilton. Maybe your best asset is the fact that you're not like everyone else. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. But the big takeaway? We'd all be in trouble without the great nurses out there risking themselves to take care of us. Thank you so much to each and every one of you. Special thanks to Arlen Hamilton for stopping by the basement. You can check out her work at itsaboutdamntime.com or through our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. But you know what? I really wish our page was now called itsaboutdamntime.com. That is the best URL I've ever heard. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahide, produced by Richie Rudder-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and there's a 73% chance that I played Chuck on Happy Days. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Hey, so I know this isn't a great nursing uniform, but I'm still thinking of wearing it to the sizzler tonight because it really shows off my guns and my buns. But you think this skirt makes my butt look big? Nah, I don't know. Really shows off my assets. (laughs) Yeah, that was lame.
Hey there, welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. For those of you new here, what happens in the after show stays in the after show. So I think, OG, we need to talk about uh, for longtime listeners what we mentioned briefly, Westwood One. I'm sure people are wondering what the heck that's all about. Not a bad idea. We should probably talk about it. So uh, maybe six months ago, we were approached by a guy named John Wardock, a fine gentleman. However, we had been approached by networks in the past, and I've always believed that being an independent podcast gives you flexibility. We can do what we want. We can talk about financial literacy in the way that we, the way that we want to talk about it. So right. being independent has been something we really wanted. However, when, when John came a calling, there were a few other considerations here. Number one was he came from the Wall Street Journal. And so immediately doing what you should always do when you do due diligence, I asked people that we know at the Wall Street Journal what they thought of John. And nobody gave us a lukewarm response. They didn't say, oh, he's all right. It was, John's amazing. He's fantastic. Right. He's great to work with. And now we know that John could go away tomorrow. But in most cases, OG, you know this, you are who you surround yourself with. And when I hear great things about John, then you think, well, then he must be surrounded with good people. So when we were in New York recently, we went to, and met with John and his team. And I think both of us came away pretty impressed by the team as well. Have you thought about the fact that we were in New York at the end of January? I know. <laughs> it, it by the way. incredible. Yeah. And I had to tell you to quit uh, picking gum off of the subway. Uh, like licking the... Doing your yeah. elf impression. Free mm -hmm. gum. Yeah. Uh, so Westwood One is a, uh, for the people that don't know, it's a big radio network, mostly known for sports. I remember listening to Westwood One with my dad, listening to the World Series, listening to March Madness. If you listen to sports at all in the car or on your radio, you may have heard, you're listening to March Madness on Westwood One or Sunday Night Baseball on Westwood One or whatever it might be. So to some degree, that clouded my decision, OG, to even bring it to you <laughs> because, because where you should be completely non-emotional and rational about decisions, the fact that we could be affiliated with the same network that I grew up with being a sports fan was, was also exciting. Oh, that stuff's not lost on me. <laughs> I, t I take everything that you bring to the table with a, with, through the lens of, and how does this affect? not affect you not 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 from that perspective what's your angle <laughs> yeah. hey i really think we should do a meetup in uh, orlando um down the street from like i'm like joe wants to go to disney world and i mean if we're in orlando we could go to i don't know disney world or something if we're there crazy hey, i think we should do a meetup in kansas city I'm like oh yeah what's in kansas oh joe's daughter hey you know if we're in if we're in kansas i mean maybe i, I we could see we can see autumn for a second we're there you know i mean we're there anyway for the meetup so next meetup by the way kirishiki japan <laughs> no, <shit. laughs> exactly kirishiki yep. both of our listeners at kirishiki my uh i got a I, I really like our group in seattle we should do a meetup in seattle you know like oh yeah what's it oh yeah that's right sun lives in seattle it's fun. No, John's in Seattle. We get to see John. He is. You're right. Yes. You're right. So uh, I'm just giving you a hard time. Yeah. One of these days you'll do a meetup in Dallas and I can just drive to it and not have to pack all my stuff on an airplane and fly across the country. 
it has been amazing the the meetings that we've had with Westwood One. We've had uh, many phone calls with lots of people who are working for us in our corner, helping us get the word out. Those of you that have been around for a long time know that while we love the fact that we can have a show that is light and fun, we are very serious about financial literacy and being able to be affiliated with a uh, network that includes over 425 radio stations. Our ability now to get the word out, OG, to a larger audience is super exciting. And here's the thing, guys, when it comes to financial literacy, there are over 330 million people in the United States. Dave Ramsey is by far the big dog when it comes to podcasts, and we've seen estimates of his podcast numbers at just over a million people listening. I know that our numbers are closing in on Dave's. <laughs> our numbers of people, not that listen to an episode, but that do know who we are, are uh, just over 10% of that number. So when you think about all of the investing, personal finance, get your act together, learn how money works podcast, you put them all together. There's a sad fact, which is not enough people are listening. So now that we have the chance to have a bigger bullhorn help us do that, I'm super excited about the opportunity. So basically what you just said was if you take Dave's million and our nearly million, um, <laughs> it's still it's still on the low end of the 300 million Americans. You take you take our four, yet it is million. We have a million. Well, we're bullhorn. rounding around up to the nearest yes. million up. Between Dave and us, we have a million and four people that listen to an episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So thank you, Westwood One. And uh, here we go, OG. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.